When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are recording episode 1059, I think, on Wednesday, January 18th, 221 p.m., 220, or 2023 p.m., 221-222 p.m. Eastern Time in the year 2023. What a butchered beginning. Dr. Ben Abelo, I've got your uh, I've got your bio here. Quite impressive. Uh, Benjamin Abelo is the author of How the West Brought War to Ukraine, Understanding How U.S. and NATO Policies Led to Crisis, War, and the Risk of Nuclear Catastrophe. Uh, catastrophe. Ben is an American citizen who believes that U.S. policies in Ukraine are deeply misguided and causing great harm to the people of the Ukraine, United States, Europe, Russia, and the rest of the world. The German translation of the book is a multi-category bestseller on Amazon. Translations are forthcoming in Italian and Polish. A Slovenian translation is being published by the Slovenian Academy of, uh, of Sciences and Arts. Additional translations are under considerations by publishers in 40 other countries. In Switzerland, a special edition of the German translation has been distributed to 300,000 households geez, in the financially and politically important cantons of Euro, uh, Zurich and Bern. Abelow previously worked in Washington, D.C., where he lobbied Congress on nuclear arms policy. He holds a B.A. in European history from the University of Pennsylvania and an, M and an M.D. from the Yale School of Medicine. His other areas of interest include the study of trauma, including war trauma. For more information, please visit Benjamin Abelow, A-B-E-L-O-W dot com. I will put that in the description. I did not know you had an M.D. That is impressive. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have one. Uh, Dr. Abelow, if I if that wasn't uh, if that wasn't uh, sufficient, please introduce yourself, my man. Uh, yeah. Hello. Nice, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so it kind of seems to be, you know, one of the like just like getting banned from YouTube for daring to question the 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 marching orders and talking points of of COVID. It was noticeable as soon as it began in February of last year. That, and that's what first kind of made the hair stand up on my neck. I again, I have no, I have no dog in the fight. I, I didn't know where Ukraine was on a map. I have no, you know, I have no deep set, uh, deep seated uh, opinion on it. But to me, it was very similar to COVID in that as soon as it started, there seemed to be marching orders, talking points, a big social media campaign, and denouncing of anyone who questioned it. And you know, I've I've interviewed Ukrainian refugees, and it's it's heartbreaking. Like I'm I'm not I'm not soulless, but like hiding behind a, a a child to not get shot at. If you question it, you're immediately denounced as you know a bad human. And I've had on individuals, or Ray McGovern, who worked for the CIA for 26 years. I've had on Claire Lopez, who worked for the CIA for 20 years. She is all about U.S. support for Ukraine. Ray McGovern is all about uh, understanding that we caused this to happen. So, again, I don't have a, I don't have an opinion on it. I'm not, I, I can observe it. And with my own 32 years of living and a biology degree, like, uh, you know, how much is my opinion really worth? But you seem to be in the camp that we did cause this. And that, that is sort of where I'm leaning towards we 
it, it is in the most simplest terms, it is their Cuban Missile Crisis, and we cannot defend the actions of Kennedy and Curtis LeMay, and then, on in the same breath, turn and denounce the actions of. We're coming right up to their doors, and there's not even ninety miles of ocean. It's it's a border of land that you can walk over. It is no different, and if if we if we hold the sovereignty of our own borders as holy, which I think every nation should, we we can't turn and and throw our arms up at Putin. Could you maybe give a more uh, accurate breakdown of of what I just said? Is there any accuracy in there, or am I babbling like an idiot? No, it sounded pretty good. And uh, <laughs> actually, Ray McGovern sounds like you've had him on. It was is somebody I've I've certainly I, learned I love from. Him. He's, I love he's, him. Uh, He's great to listen to, not only in terms yeah. of his knowledge, but in terms of his uh, his humor and his emotive mm. presentation. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think the you know the Cuban Missile Crisis analogy is really great. And uh, I actually, you know, after I wrote the book, I mean, I had an introduction, of course, but that was like substantial, like eight page introduction, and then you know led on to the chapters. It's a short book, but right at the end, I decided like, what is the key issue that's really goes to the heart of this, that if somebody's going to just read a page or two of the book, what do I want them to take away from, even a paragraph? So I actually opened the book with this little page and a half section called uh, Overview, where I just started by saying, you know, ever since 1823, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and I'm not going to try to uh, give you sure. verbatim, but basically I just said ever since 1823, the U.S. has had this thing called the Monroe Doctrine, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, it's been interpreted in different ways, but it's generally interpreted to mean that no foreign power can place uh, military forces pretty much anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, this has really been treated, you know, kind of de facto as the uh, the foundation of U.S. foreign and military policy. And the idea that, uh, you know, central to that concept of the Monroe Doctrine is the idea that where uh, a potential opponent places forces is vitally important. You know, the proximity of those forces to one's border. And uh, the U.S. and NATO have largely disregarded that with respect to Russia. They've pretty much just said, look, our intentions are benign. And, uh, you know, you're a paranoid, uh, you know, paranoid if you think that we're actually causing trouble. But in the process, they've moved closer and closer to Russia's border, right onto its border, including doing very provocative uh, military exercises, uh -huh. for instance, in Estonia doing live fire rocket exercises right on Russia's border to practice destroying targets inside Russia. So it's really kind of crazy and it's been very provocative. And when I say provocative, I don't mean they're deliberately trying to provoke a war, although I think there probably are some people in government who want sure. to do that, some of the neocons. Sure. But I think it's probably a mixed bag what people really intended. But any way you cut it, there's been a kind of blindness and indifference to how Russia perceives things. And if you try to put yourself in the shoes of how how they might perceive it, you know, you're called Putin's puppet and uh, dupe of the Kremlin and you know, you're, you're spouting propaganda. You're not just talking common sense that's enshrined in our own Monroe Doctrine. It is. And again, like the Monroe Doctrine, like I don't think there's anything wrong with defending your area, but there has to be an applicability to everyone. You can't say this is our set. This is our sanctimonious ground. And then when someone else, I can't say, I'm going to lock my door. I'm not married. I don't have kids. But let's pretend I have a wife and kids. And you come out on my property, I'm going to start firing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. That's your livelihood. I then cannot walk onto Dr. Ablo's property. And when you click a gun, I go, what in God's name are you doing, bro? I'm just walking. And maybe I just am. And that's fine. 
but I would then need to discuss and consult with you that you too are allowed to walk on my land. And if, if I go, I actually, I'm not okay with that. I have to then understand that I can't walk on yours. Now, if I hold the biggest military and you have a gun, but I have a bunch of tanks in my property, well, I might start bullying you. But then you have to understand how everyone else is going to view that. You are no different than any other hegemon in the history of man. And anyone that watches this show knows, I'm, I'm clearly, give it a spoiler alert, I love this country, right? I've, I'm, I'm not ashamed of my love for my country. I don't think anyone should be ashamed of the love for theirs. So it is almost out of character for me to take an anti-U.S. stance. But that comes from not just individuals like yourself or, or, or Mr. McGovern, but also... I mean, I've interviewed countless times, Green Berets, Delta Force, CIA Ground Branch. I mean, Spec Ops, Black Ops. And they are all saying, what are we doing? What are we? There are a couple, excuse my French, there are a couple assholes at the highest levels. And they are provoking this. And this is going to, best case, lead us down another 20-year involvement. Worst case, it's going to be the Cuban Missile Crisis. And God forbid it goes hot. And um, I kind of want to pivot from there. Have you ever read Base Nation by uh, Professor David Vine? Uh, no, haven't. I think you'd really enjoy that. I've had him on here before. It's a book. Um, it's one of my favorite books about all U.S. bases around uh, the world. I can. I'll, I'll send down. you. I'll send you the Audible link. Oh, great! It thanks. Is, yeah, it is. It is very critical, and he goes and lays out just just how critical it is. We. You know, we, we we shake our fist. We hear just a rumor about Chinese involvement with Mexican cartels. But we're we're lined throughout the Pacific, the Atlantic and the Indian in in Italy, in Germany. I mean, the biggest airbase we have is not even in our own country. It's in the middle of Europe. It it is a snake wrapping around the world. And then we go and shake a fist at China's Belt and Road Initiative. Which, okay, a simple argument, you could say, well, we're for freedom and democracy and they're for communism, but that that's a pretty low-hanging fruit argument. And, you know, you have to wonder, hey, is it me with this flag behind me? Do you think there's any conflicts of interest with that argument? So that being said, how do we address this then? Because very quickly, one is attacked for, oh, so you're for the invasion of Ukraine? You're for the the bulldozing of, of homes and and you're for the displacement of women and children. H how does one approach this in the most, I guess, mature and professional manner and humane manner? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, on a kind of gut level, you know, my reaction when I hear people say things like Putin's puppet or, you know, you're just spouting Russian propaganda. I mean, I just want to say, you know, you can't take yourself seriously. You know, this is a, a really major, important political issue that deals with, you know, war and peace with the death of hundreds of thousands of people. And and because somebody takes a position on one side, you, you think the correct response is to uh, is to kind of try to smear the person's motives. I mean, it's crazy. And it's it's really nuts that people do that. And it's kind of nuts that anyone even takes it seriously. I mean, in my mind, they're pretty much incriminating themselves by making those kind of arguments. So. You know, as a practical matter, I don't really want to play defense in terms of saying, well, I'm really not Putin's puppet. You know, I want to say, what are you out of your mind to even make yeah. that kind of argument? You know, we're talking about a war here. Let's let's discuss what the causes of this war are. Let's discuss 
now that it's going on, what the best way to proceed is or to deal with it or to negotiate out of it. Um, and let's discuss, you know, what are the actual motivations of the different players involved? Um, and what's the real nature of, you know, of the state of Ukraine, which people have a very badly misconceived notion about what's going on there. So, um, so that's on one level. I guess on the other level, I just say, uh, <clears throat> you know, very practically, it's, it seems like a lot of the people who want to present, present themselves as being real humanitarians, like we're real humanitarians, we're going to go in there and fight this war and we're going to, you know, supply the Ukrainians with weapons. I mean, these are the very same people very often. I don't want to paint everybody. I'm sure there's a range of opinions on both sides of this. But, you know, these are the very same people who say things like, we should arm Ukraine because they're going to fight to the last man. You know, I mean, we're really talking about this is actually, um, <laughs> actually, you, uh, you, you know, and there's people who say that, that we should just, that they're doing the dirty work. They're fighting on behalf of NATO. They're fighting for the U.S. And uh, I mean, people have literally said, uh, you know, we're going to supply them so they can fight to the last man for Ukrainian independence. Uh, th this is actually a quote that I first learned of from uh, Chaz Freeman, who was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs uh, in the 90s. And is, uh, he was actually uh, Nixon's, uh, early on in his career, he was with the State Department. He was Nixon's primary interpreter in China during Nixon's famous trip. And then he became ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and at a slightly earlier stage, he was uh, in, the, in the Defense Department. And he just uses this phrase to fight for the last uh, to the last man for Ukrainian independence, and others have said pretty much the same thing. Um, so, where am I going with this? Uh, what I'm trying to say is, if you actually look at the concrete consequences of this, I mean, this war didn't have to start, and once it started, uh, Russia and Ukraine were negotiating for a settlement in March that the West actually broke up, um, and then you know. Since then, what, uh, 120,000 Ukrainians have died is sort of the estimate. You know, I mean, there's a lot of estimates, but this one was actually put forward by the European Union that 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers died and 20,000 civilians. And, you know, what is it, eight or 10 million people displaced? I mean, the whole country is being destroyed. And the longer we stay there, whether or not we win, quote unquote, I don't think we can win. I don't think there can be winners from this because Russia sees this as a vital interest. But even if we were to quote unquote win, I mean, Ukraine would be just destroyed. You'd have probably, you know, I don't know, another hundred, couple hundred thousand people dead, another half million permanently maimed. Uh, you know, cities would be totally destroyed. So the idea that uh, this is somehow a humanitarian venture. So I, to some extent, I'd also want to just come back to people who think that they're fighting, that they're arguing for a sort of humanitarian cause. It's like, they're not doing any such thing. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people dying. And I'm not even talking about the Russians. I mean, whatever you think of Russia, I mean, these are basically, you know, young men in many cases, you know, literally boys who are just being burned alive in their tanks by, uh, you know, javelin anti-tank weapons. I mean, uh, whatever you think of Putin, I mean, these, these kids there, they think they're fighting for the survival of their country. Uh, and, you know, maybe they are, but, uh, uh, you know, or in some cases, they've probably been drafted against their will. But, you know, in a sense, all the soldiers are just civilians who have somehow or other been sucked into the war. And um, I, I think it, you know, it behooves us to, you know, pay pay attention to the humanity of the people on the other side as well. But even if you disregard that, I mean, Ukraine is just getting wrecked.
So uh, the, the longer it goes on, the more I'll get wrecked. And I think perhaps it is my own, I thought non-existent, but apparently some form of subconscious racism in that I can watch 20 years of the war on terror and be like, they're terrorists. And then the second I see a, a white guy that, you know, with my pale Irish skin, hey, a guy from like Northern Russia looks a lot like me. I find myself doing that more and more going, dude, these are just guys. These are just guys that got, I interviewed this guy named T. I don't know his real name. He's in a Syriet, which is Israeli special forces. One of my first episodes, right? Jewish special forces guy from Israel. And I remember asking him kind of just off the cuff. I would like to think my interview skills are a little more fine honed now, but I was like, there's gotta be no one that hates uh terrorist more than you. And he was like, I feel so bad for them. And I was like, what? And he's like, let me preface this by saying, I have to kill them. It's us first step. One of us is going home. It's me. He's like, you don't have to like that answer. It's what the answer is. All right, fair enough. But I was like, why do you, why do you feel bad for them? He's like, these guys are, a lot of them have never even heard the term 9-11. They don't know what the United States is. They've never seen a dentist in their life. They've never brushed their teeth. They've maybe seen running water on a handful of occasions. They are wearing the same sandals that their dad gave them, and they're holding the same AK that their grandpa gave their dad. They make maybe, they've got maybe, best case, like a nickel a week from whatever they're doing, if they even get paid. And then some wealthy financer comes along, you know, some arm of some interman between whatever intelligence agencies are financing this. And they offer him $1,000 to go fire an RPG at this U.S. convoy or this Israeli convoy or NATO convoy or U.N. convoy. They're never going to see $1,000 if they work every day to the end of their short life. But now they're offered this, get out, and it's win-win for them. If it fails and they get killed, they're out of this shithole that is their life. And a lot of them believe that if they die, they're going to paradise. And if they don't die, they have $1,000 and they have honor. Why wouldn't you take that? They, there is no community college for them to go to. And now I understand that Russia is not as desolate as the Middle East, but that really opened my eyes. This guy wasn't some hippie. This is an Israeli special forces guy. And he has this, it's almost like the Grinch when the heart grows three times. Like, And I'm sitting there and I'm feeling like the idiot. And that's really what the, and now let's play devil's advocate. You could easily turn this argument and say, well, do you not feel the same towards Ukrainians? Sure, I do. I've I've I've, inter I've interviewed the guys with their six month old kid. I've had a guy in here several times who now lives in Spain with his family, just house destroyed. So, you would then say, yes, I do feel that for the Ukrainians as well. So then, how can we have our cake and eat it too? Some sort of negotiation to to make this end. It already happened. It sucks. It could have been avoided, but shoulda, coulda, woulda, whatever. That's never helped anyone. We are here now. It's January 18th, 2023. What's done is done. As shitty as it is, it's done. What can be done now? And it seems that we're actively sabotaging any peaceful outcome. Why is that? Is it is it as simple as the military industrial complex is just getting just getting its food? I mean, is it that simple and evil? Or is this U.S. hegemony and NATO expanding across the planet. Not, not that you have a crystal ball, but yeah, boy. First, of all, I love how you frame a lot of this, Tommy. It's really, uh, 
it's uh, it goes right to the heart of it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, why is the U.S. doing this? Um, I think there are different motivations. I do think the military-industrial complex, uh, basically, you know, how directly they're shaping things, it's hard to say, and it's actually how you even define military-industrial complex, sure. but they're definitely tilting the whole playing field so that the options, the range of options that are considered are very distorted. Uh, I mean, the military-industrial complex, you, you know, uh, Ray McGovern, as you know, he calls it the Mickey Mat, military-industrial, yeah, yeah. congressional, intelligence, media, academia, yeah. think, think tank yeah, complex yeah, is the end of it. Yeah. So, you know, the think tanks are being funded by the military-industrial complex, and they, you know, they come up with these range of options, and those options are always tilted towards war. Um you know, I think the the clearest statements that come out of the U.S. were, um, you know, was it in March or April? I can't even remember when. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess it was in April, probably. Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, and Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, they did this kind of secret trip to Kiev, and they came back, and then they did this press conference, and Lloyd Austin, uh, you know, just stated that one of our goals is to uh, weaken Russia, so they sure. can't do this again, and it's really clear that the U.S. is trying to weaken Russia and um, that this is a major goal. And that was one reason why uh, the West really effectively sabotaged peace uh, discussions between Ukraine and Russia in March. You know, you can go to Reuters and you can see pictures of it. It's, you know, they were in Turkey and they're sitting at this big long table with like 15 people on each side. And according to a Ukrainian publication, Ukrainska Pravda, not the not the old Soviet Pravda, but the Ukrainska Pravda, which is like a, the leading online Ukrainian uh, uh, publication, they said that one of the main reasons why this um, these peace negotiations were scuttled was that uh, in the middle of the negotiations, Boris Johnson, who was then Prime Minister of uh, England, uh, showed up. A surprise visit in Ukraine and basically told Zelensky, you may be ready for peace, but we, the collective West, are not. Uh, and this report was then uh, the main outlines of the report were really, or let me just say the important parts of that report were then validated in a uh, recent article in uh, Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, an article by, uh, of all people, Fiona Hill. If people mm -hmm. know her, she's no uh, dove. Um, so this is an example of the U.S. first stating publicly that their goal is to weaken Russia. Then, because uh, Boris Johnson is not about to do anything like this without U.S. approval, and perhaps not even without U.S. sanction or deciding we want you to do this on the U.S. behalf, uh, those things don't just happen without the U.S.'s involvement. So here we have the U.S. saying that they want to weaken Russia. Uh, stated by Lloyd Austin with Anthony Blinken at his side. Then uh, the peace negotiations are, are scuttled. Uh, and uh, then the war continues. And from there on, it's been escalation. And now Russia is, you know, it's less clear what Russia is willing to accept now. Now it seems like both sides are becoming, uh, especially Russia is becoming harder in its demands. They say they're not going to give up those four territories at all, those four oblasts. But um, early on and for months after, they were just openly asserting they want to negotiate. Uh, but, you know, the U.S. wouldn't hear from it. Uh, I'll add one more thing, just since you started off by framing this with respect to the military industrial complex, is that Lloyd Austin, I believe it was, I mean, he was with Raytheon, which is one of the major weapons manufacturers used here. I, I think they make the javelin, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't know uh, Lloyd Austin was with Raytheon. 
Yeah, he was. I think he was a uh, board of directors oh, with Raytheon. I forget. And uh, you know, there's of course a revolving door between the Defense yeah. Department and the military and in military industrial complex and uh, all these things. So you know, to what extent that influences his thinking, uh, I don't really know, but it certainly raises some questions. And uh, you know, many of the people who are involved in defense and uh, higher levels of defense department uh, have uh, very strong connections with the um, military industrial complex, or they will have them uh, by the time they retire and when they move into a sinecure. Do you think there's almost like a, you know, you know the term, uh, and I vaguely remember it uh, from literature, Deus ex machina. God yeah, yeah. deity out of the machine or God yeah. out of the machine. Or I've always machine. just kind of used it as an example of just bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? And and then a UFO came and it gave us free energy. What? Like that's not no like a really good sci-fi author, right? They they flesh it out. They they give you the reasons why this happened. They set it up in the first book and they and then it, it blossoms in the fifth book. But when someone's like, and then we found a nuke, and it's like. But the guy struggling finds a case of gold and it's like, dude, come on like that. Come on. Right. It's. And so I always have to be careful when I use this. But. On one hand, you know, just saying the military industrial complex, which obviously I did, not you. I part of me is like, that's it's just kind of like bad, bad writing. Why is this happening? Oh, it's the military industrial complex. <laughs> like. Well, yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of shirking of right of fleshing it out. And then on the other hand, there's like, you know, another Deus Ex Machina is could it be said that and this is, I would suppose, in defense of the Biden administration, the current US administration. It's not even called Biden because I don't want to go down polarities Republican the current US hegemony. In their defense, to play devil's advocate. Is there something, and this is Deus Ex Machina, is there something you and I don't know? Is there something where they're good meaning and they pull us into a room into a skiff and they go, listen, this is happening and this is happening and we know Russia's doing this and it may look bad to you and it is bad, but, you know, like nuking Japan, you know, my dad's dad was was 18, was going to be on, on the mainland invasion of Japan. I have to support the nuking of it because I wouldn't be alive to make the argument otherwise. It's shitty, but it's also what happens in war. Like, I, I want to believe that. I want to believe Lloyd Austin and, and, and Anthony Blinken could pull us into the room and say, Ben, Tommy, sit down. This is what's going on. You guys kept complaining on the here it is. Here's the special access program. This is happening and this is happening. And the the least worst case scenario is 120,000 Ukrainians dead and us spending 100 billion dollars. If we don't do anything, this is what happens. There is no there is no option where one of the two doesn't happen. So we're taking the least worst. I want to believe that. That's maybe the naivety in me that sees the good in everyone. But I don't. But I want to believe it. Is there is there any and is there any chance that there is something bigger going on or is it just is it not even deus ex machina is it just simple as like nah man we're in charge of the world and we have the military and the resources and we're gonna bully everyone because it's them or us it's zero-sum game is it just the total like red pilling of what it means to be in the the power structure of the planet yeah. Again, again, those are some massive questions to just throw onto you, like you. Have yeah, the yeah. I mean, I, I was having. <laughs> What's so the meaning thought... of life? What happened before the universe? While we're at it, tell tell me every. How do I find no. happiness in life? What is fulfillment? 
I think it's a great question. I, I had so many thoughts going through my head as you were talking. I was, I'll just grab any of them. I, I hope I can it. keep it straight. But um, right. let me just start with uh, going back one step before I try to answer exactly your question. Having to do with military industrial complex, it, it does sound like when I was in medical school, there was a, uh, a term that was used when the professor would get up to the board and they'd be trying to explain something that really wasn't understood. They would, you know, they'd wave their hands as part of a presentation, like, you know, and then this happens and then this happens. And it was sort of a joke among the medical students, like, uh, it's a lot of hand waving. Oh, okay. You know, yes. like, uh, so it does, you know, if you're just looking at it, hear someone talk military industrial complex, MIC, MIC all the time, it can sound like a bunch of hand waving. Like it's just some, as you said, some little weird explanation. Yeah. But, you know, uh, just two things to keep in mind there. Number one, uh, you know, this this concept originated with uh, General Eisenhower when mm -hmm. he was president. It actually was uh, sort of uh, stated publicly in his farewell address, which was his last televised address January to the 17th, U.S. public. 1961. You know, this is a five-star general and a European war hero, and he knew how the whole system worked. And he was concerned enough that he uh, publicly warned the American public about the undue influence of the military-industrial complex. So, you know, this is not some peacenik who's trying to wave their hands with some crazy explanation to defend a sort of pacifist position. Uh, this is, uh, you know, General Eisenhower. And the situation uh, is, you know, if anything, much more uh, embedded and complicated and worse now, to put it simply. Um, so this is no joke. This is real. Now, Eisenhower, I don't know if this has ever been verified, but it's been said that Eisenhower actually wanted to call it not the military industrial complex, but the military industrial congressional complex. Oh. So if you're looking for very concrete ways in which these influences occur, it's, there's a lot of money pouring into Congress. Um, oh. So it's uh, Congress is being influenced. And then, as we said before, you know, a la Ray McGovern, it's a lot of other things. Money's going into think tanks. Uh, the media, I have to say, I got to spend more time trying to understand. There's a, a book actually just came out by, uh, uh, by Ted, Car Ted Carpenter called Unreliable Watchdog which is basically about the, the role of the media, uh, which I've not read yet. So I, I don't have anything super informed to say that might be in there, but I'm just flagging other books as well as mine that people yeah. might want to take a look at. I'm going to make a note of that. What, what was it called? Uh, it's called Unreliable Watchdog. I can probably get you a PDF of that, uh, Tommy, if you want. Be, uh, you know, just don't circulate it, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, and I got no interest in this book, by the way, financially. I've never met Ted. I just think it's, uh, he does good work. I have to, I make that disclaimer with everyone. I don't get a penny from any, I've interviewed a hundred, yeah. hundreds of authors. It's, I, yeah, I have, in, in fact, I probably just convinced some people to buy his book instead of mine. So I'm probably yeah, losing no, buy, money by doing Buy Ben's first. Then yeah, the buy mine off. first and then read that one. But, that's the order. That's but, the chronological order. Yeah. Uh, coming to your question or your, your comment, your, your pointed remark, however you want to describe it of, you know, maybe there's something really going on here that the people who are pushing this war you know, know something we don't, and we're kind of eh, not exactly being duped, but we're just, you know, naive, missing something. I, I think I'd say two things. Um, uh, one is that, you know, this war is framed, uh, I see it being framed in a, in a number of ways, but two of them are, number one, that Putin is the new Hitler, that this had nothing to do with NATO expansion, that this is about, you know, this aggressive, intrinsic expansionism of Putin, uh, that he's trying to reconstitute the uh, the Russian uh, the 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 Tsarist uh, Imperium is a term that Fiona Hill uses, or trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union. I think uh, Stephen Kotkin at Princeton uses that kind of term, or um, uh, Timothy Snyder, you know, also has a very uh, cynical view of 
I don't mean that he's cynical. I mean, it's a view of that, you know, these people are expansionist, evil, et cetera. And that's what we're fighting. We're not dealing with blowback from our own NATO expansion. I want to read something actually here and here I will. Sure. I'll just, here, I'll tap my book for one second. As long as yeah. I show the other one, I can do this. Without this is my book here. I don't know if it's reading backwards or forwards. Oh, but you're good. How the West brought war to Ukraine. Yeah, you can buy it pretty much order through any bookstore. You can get it through Amazon, et cetera. <clears throat> In chapter five of my book, I have a uh, quote from uh, Fiona Hill, who was, uh, you know, she's a deep Washington insider uh, for many administrations, or, you know, usually thought of as a real Russia hawk. Uh, very, uh, you know, to put it mildly, extremely skeptical of Russia's motivations. In this uh, interview she did in Politico just a few days after the war started, I think it was a February 28th, 2022 interview, she uh, made a kind of remarkable statement. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's what happens when I talk too fast. No, you're good. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read it slow. It's, it's a little bit boring. It can sound boring superficially, but I'll, I'll just read you what she said. And then I'll read you what I wrote in the book. Um, so uh, this is this uh, Politico interview. When asked by the interviewer, Putin is, so Putin is being driven by emotion right now, not by some kind of logical plan. That's the interviewer. So Hill corrected the interviewer and said, uh, I think there's been a logical, methodical plan that goes back a very long way, at least to 2007, when he, Putin, put the world, and certainly Europe, on notice that Moscow would not accept the further expansion of NATO. And then, uh, and then within a year in 2008, NATO gave an open door to Georgia and Ukraine, open door meaning it, willing to admit them. Uh, it absolutely goes back to that juncture. And then uh, he'll continues. Back then I was a national intelligence officer and the National Intelligence Council was analyzing what Russia was likely to do in response to the NATO Open Door Declaration. One of our assessments was that there was a real genuine risk of some kind of preemptive Russian military action, not just, to not just confined to the annexation of Crimea, but to some much larger action taken against Ukraine along with Georgia. And then, of course, four months after NATO's Bucharest summit, when NATO uh, gave the open door to Georgia and Ukraine, there was the invasion of Georgia. And then she continues, this is really telling, there wasn't an invasion of Ukraine then because the Ukrainian government pulled back from seeking NATO membership. I mean, she she almost comes out and says, <laughs> you know, she she she's she's busy on, in the argument in her uh, in her interview, arguing that what's really going on is that Putin is trying to establish a Staurus Imperium. But then you look at what she's revealing here about a uh, assessment by the U.S. National Intelligence Council in 2007, probably. And back then, this is what, 14 years ago, they were already saying <laughs> that if the U.S., if NATO gets expanded, Georgia is going to get wrecked. Ukraine is going to be invaded. Crimea will be taken. Now, I don't see how anyone can read this coming from Fiona Hill, and it's not just her opinion. She's citing the National Intelligence Council. This is an incredible revelation. How anyone after hearing that can think this doesn't have to do with NATO expansion is just unbelievable. So uh, that's one thing I want to say. The, the second thing is, you know, what kind of country is Ukraine? People have this image here of this great democracy uh, that is basically, uh, you know, fighting like a little uh, David against Goliath against mm -hmm. Russia. And in some respects, yes, it is a, a, a David compared to a Goliath. Sure. But um, 
if you look at what's actually been going on in Ukraine, there's an extremely, uh, really, all you can do is call it fascistic right-wing movement in Ukraine. Literal Nazis. Yeah, literal Nazis, or they, you know, they, the technically more accurate view would be that they, that they, in common with Nazis, have a common uh, philosophical concept that's sometimes referred to as um, uh, in integral na nationalism. That's, it's that's it's in certain great. ways they're literal Nazis, and some of them really are literal Nazis. In other ways, it's a sort of a sibling form of fascism, hmm. uh, and they have uh, a influence within Ukraine that's vastly out of proportion with respect to the actual vote that they receive because they're not afraid to use military threat. Hmm. Uh, so this is actually an area that I'm busy trying to investigate more fully to understand the extent to which what's going on can really be seen just almost directly as a, uh, almost call it a fascistic takeover of the Ukrainian government by the extreme right uh, and then that uh, internal split within the country is being militarized by largely by the U.S. You could also say to some extent by the Russians who have done some arming of Donbass and were certainly involved in uh, in the uh, annexation of Crimea. But um, the, the entire notion that this is sort of this, um, you know, wildly democratic country, uh, it's it, the the predominant force is Ukrainian nationalism, and it's been mainstreamed into the Ukrainian government after 2014, uh, and it is extremely Russophobic. Um, uh, recently, Petro Poroshenko, who was uh, the uh, Ukrainian president that was in place during the negotiation of the quote-unquote Minsk agreements, these were uh, negotiations that took place in 2014 and 2015 uh, involving France, Germany, Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. was indirectly involved um, to try to come up with a ceasefire uh, in the Donbass area. These are the areas in eastern Ukraine, uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk areas. Uh, and these agreements were signed. And recently, Petro Poroshenko came out and said publicly that the whole thing was a ruse, that it was an attempt to get the Russians to uh, stop being involved so that Ukraine could build up its military force. Uh, and in fact, uh, I don't know if she's telling the truth, but Angela Merkel, who was then the chancellor of uh, Germany, also said that this was a ruse. So, you know, here we're talking about a peace treaty that in 2014 and 2015, uh, and many people have said, including um, uh, Ambassador Jack Matlock, who was ambassador to the Soviet Union, second to last ambassador to the Soviet Union, 1987 to 1991, he said that if the Minsk agreements had been allowed to go through, this whole war probably could have been prevented. Um, so uh, the the idea that um, uh, that we're really dealing here with a kind of a purely democratic, peace-loving Ukraine that's just sort of being completely out of the blue attacked by Russia, that the Russia is responsible for breaking peace negotiations. And even things like taking of Crimea, it's not as simple as just, you know, people think of NATO expansion as a, uh, a kind of abstraction, but you need to look at the concretes of what this is. And it, it even goes beyond this idea of sort of trying to imagine a Monroe Doctrine for them. Uh, I mentioned uh, these uh, missile exercises in uh, in uh, Estonia before. So Estonia is right on Russia's border. It borders on Russia, northwest Russia. It's probably not too far from St. Petersburg. Uh, and in 19 in uh, 2020 and 2021, uh, NATO engaged in live fire rocket exercises 
Uh, and in 2021, they fired 24 missiles uh, that, that did not have live warheads and they didn't actually enter Russian territory, but this is, you know, they actually fired these missiles. Um, and the, the stated aim was to practice destroying air defense targets inside Russia. Now, NATO claims, and I suspect they probably were being completely honest about this, look, our intentions were not to decide on a preemptive attack for Russia, but, you know, what are we going to do if Russia invades with tanks? You know, well, we, then we got to destroy their air defense targets, da, da, da. But, you know, my God, how does that look to Russia? Yeah. Um, so, and then how does it look, especially when the U.S. is, uh, you know, continually talking about bringing uh, Ukraine into NATO, that they refused to negotiate about this issue in uh, December and January 2021 and 2022, right before the war started. Putin was putting forward all kinds of proposals to both NATO and the U.S. that we should negotiate about keeping Ukraine out of NATO. Uh, and I think he was very concerned that this kind of stuff would become, that NATO would become basically an armed military camp, uh, intrinsically hostile to Russia, right on Russia's border. Um, and it gets even worse than that because some of the anti-ballistic um, missiles, these are missiles that are set up in Poland and Ukraine to, to uh, allegedly to shoot down incoming warheads from Iran and South mm -hmm. Korea and North Korea. Those things are actually quite capable of housing offensive nuclear weapons like uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles, yep. which have warheads that are, it's a dial of yield. You can yeah. select the yield up to 150 kilotons. This is yeah. like 10 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, you know, we're talking about what, 400 miles from Moscow. Yeah. Um, so this minutes. is all extremely provocative stuff. So uh, coming back to your very uh, sage question, comment, uh, insight before, I, I don't think that any of these arguments that have been made by people that we trust to try to know more than we do are making much sense at all. Hmm. Um, yeah, in terms of my, uh, <clears throat> my, my, my rant earlier, I often do that. I'll, I'll go through a rant and ask 10 questions, and in my mind, I'm only remembering the most recent. So the <laughs> guest is always like, I'll try to answer all of them, and I'm like, wait, what? I, I forget it. I'll ask 10 questions, and like... I'm, and they're like, I got to write those down. I was like, oh, shit, I always forget to do that. But this is something I also do every podcast. I drink a lot of water and I have to use the restroom. And when I go to the restroom, I tell the guests to tell everybody where to find your book and your website and your social media. So, Dr. Abelo, this is your show for 30 seconds. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, all right. If you're interested in the book, first, let me just say it's a, it's a very short book. I really wanted to write something that people would actually read, that it wouldn't be something that would just sit on a shelf. Uh, the whole thing is uh, just about fifteen or seventeen thousand words. For those who don't, you know, aren't used to counting words in a book, it's kind of like an essay. Uh, a typical book is maybe fifty thousand words. Um, uh, uh, also, it has endorsements from lots of people from a variety of perspectives. Uh, I did put a quote from Noam Chomsky on the cover. Uh, very well done. Reviews material that should be much better known. I put him on not because, you know, he necessarily reflects all of my views or vice versa, but because he's the best known in the American public. But I also have endorsements from uh, Chaz Freeman, who was previously Assistant Secretary of Defense. I have endorsement from Jack Matlock, who was the U.S. Ambassador to the Soviet Union and actually helped negotiate the end of the Cold War. I have an endorsement from uh, Douglas McGregor, who was actually the director of a very important NATO operations center in Europe. Uh, endorsement from John Mearsheimer. And over in England, uh, endorsement for Richard Sakwa, who was a professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent, England. Uh, so where to get the book? 
you can go to any bookstore and tell them that you want to get it. Uh, How the West Brought War to Ukraine by Benjamin Abelow. Uh, they may have to order it, but you probably can get it pretty quick. You can go to Amazon and get it real quick. You know, it's uh, it's Amazon Prime. It's uh, I don't know what seller status it is there. It's selling pretty well. Um, as I said, the German edition, German language edition is a uh, number one bestseller in multiple categories, but you know, Amazon's a pretty simple way to get it. Um, and if you want to find out more, you can just visit my website, benjaminabelow.com, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-A-B-E-L-O-W.com. I've got a couple of little video clips there. Uh, I've got a sort of a very brief q and I've got a link to a, a longer Q&A that I did elsewhere. Got a big picture of my smiling face. Uh, anyway, that pretty much covers it. Thanks, Tommy. Yeah, I, and I've so I've been pronouncing your last name incorrectly this entire time. Like an idiot, Abelo, not Abelo. Totally fine. I got cousins who go by Abelo. Beautiful. Um, and I, I guess I can use this example with you. So I have a biology degree. I got into medical school in 2013. Got accepted to the University of Miami. Uh, decided not to go, but I was super obsessed with studying it's all i did and one thing i always remember and it comes up comes up time and time again in this podcast oddly enough talking about like geopolitics is uh i think it's organic chemistry but the uh the hydrophobic effect and it's where all these molecules will will stick together and it it seems like they're all attracted to one another and it seems like they're making a shape or something but it's not that at all it's just that they're all hydrophobic. And so they're all sort of backed into their own corner, if you will. Has nothing to do with their own attraction to one another. It's just that they are pushed away by everything else. And that's kind of what I think about Russia and Fiona Hill. It's we're the water. And we're saying they're making this shape. The shape would be the expansion of the 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 czarist imperium, the a, a new Soviet Union, a Russian Union. And we're going. They're making this shape. How dare they? All the while talking about our plans for pushing water in in different ways, and it's there. We're pushing them to this point. We're not addressing the fact that we are slowly creeping forward with NATO. We are pushing them to. I mean, water has a definite volume. You can only push it so many times. It has to expand. It ha it has to, you push it here, a tendril is going to pop out there. If we're backing them into this corner, all the while saying, I can't believe they're lashing out. I mean, live live missile firing exercises. I mean, in 1983, we had um, Operation uh, or Pro Operation Able Archer, which almost caused World War III. It's, it's the lesser known Cuban Missile Crisis where we did this massive drill with NATO right on Russia's border. And Russia, rightfully, or at least understandably, thought that this was all a PSYOP, that we were doing a, a drill, but actually we were coming over ready to start World War III, all the while saying, oh, it's just a drill. Now, it turns out it was just a drill, but it took years and years later to realize just like after the Soviet Union fell, that we got all these declassified documents from the KGB. They thought it was... They thought it was go time. There are like cables between KGB officials basically saying like, it was nice knowing you like kiss the wife goodbye. Like we're moving to the bunker. Like we're getting ready to go because we're not going to let them invade our homeland. And then God bless cooler heads prevailed. But that 
there's reason to believe that. And so if we're going right up to the, and then, and then you have to go one step further and you can almost imagine someone like looking at me, shaking their head and going, yeah, that's the point. We're trying to provoke them. We're trying to provoke them so that they lash out so we can spank them and we're the good guys because we're protecting the the women and children. Never mind Syria and Yemen and Afghanistan and Iraq. Don't think about that. Shut up. We're going to push them until they act and then we're going to strike them down. And we have the biggest military and we can kind of bully them. And that's a really crummy answer. But it seems like that's what it is. And... You know, we're having the realization that, again, General Eisenhower, no dove, had 30 years before him, General Smedley Butler had, you know, after Eisenhower, MacArthur had, right? There will always be a boogeyman on the other side in need of new weapons to fight. I mean, I, I know it's the, the deus ex machina, but it kind of seems like that's just what it is, is it's, what a surprise, it's money and power. And maybe we're the idiots for trying to call them out on you know, con uh, uh, contradictions and uh, hypocritical actions. I don't know. Not really a question in there, but your thoughts. I don't know. I think those are good, good questions and good, good, good ponderings. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I take, uh, you know, there's different ways you can approach it, sort of minimalist, maximalist view to the military industrial complex. Like on the one hand, you could say they're driving the whole thing, you know, maybe, I really don't know. I don't know how one figures out exactly yeah. like the relative amounts. I would say almost at a minimum, I don't see this contestable. The The entire playing field is tilted towards war. That doesn't mean war is going to happen in every instance. It means that there's, you know, let's call it a systematic bias towards military intervention and a kind of systematic disregard of diplomatic solutions and a systematic bias, you know, against peaceful resolutions, a systematic bias against, you know, contemplating the possibility that maybe Putin is not the new Hitler or the new Stalin. Maybe he's just a guy who, yeah, he's autocratic domestically in Russia, but he's not looking to take over the world. And even even autocratically within, within Russia, yeah, it's true. I mean, he's done some terrible stuff probably, but it it doesn't mean he's the new Hitler or the new Stalin. It's, it's, um, he, the way his level of autocracy has sometimes been called been so, called sort of soft autocracy or soft autocratic ruler. Uh, this is not, you know, a totalitarian state in the way that Stalin's state was, the way Hitler's state was. Uh, and in fact, if you read some of his speeches, including you, you go back to this, you know, people often will quote him saying, <clears throat> you know, that the worst disaster was, the, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Well, if you actually go back to the original talk, it was 2005 uh, annual address to the uh, uh, the Federal Assembly of the Russian uh, of the Russian Federal Republic, and you can find that. I can send you the link to the uh, Kremlin translation, but you can also find the original Russian and then run it through DeepL or uh, uh, Google Translate, and you'll find it says the same thing. Uh, this entire talk was very much the opposite of what that statement is portrayed to be. And the, the rhetorical purpose that Putin put the use of that quotation to, which itself has been mistranslated, he didn't say it was the worst. He said it was a major uh, a geostrategic crisis. You know, he was really talking about what amounted to sort of an economic collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, or of the population. There were, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the economy contracted by like 30 percent. 
the the uh, the life expectancy of males I think dropped by five years within that immediate period. I mean, it was it was a, a kind of a humanitarian catastrophe that was occurring there. That's what he was referring to. And if you go back and you look at the rest of the talk, much of it is actually something, frankly, that uh, Democratic patriots would have been pleased to say. Uh, uh, you know, again, I'm not I'm not trying to make a direct equation between the U.S. and and uh, and Putin's Russia, but I, I offer that really as an example of just how distorted and how misused and you know either deceptive, genuinely deceptive with the intention of deceiving, or just you know incredible ignorance on the part of some of the people who toss around these quotations without actually going to the sources. Um, so I don't know how I got how I no, got no. on that, uh, but uh, somehow that came out of uh, uh, no, no, merging what you were saying. No, beautifully said. I'm one of those people that has I now know unknowingly misattributed that quote. I've brought that up playing. One thing I do on this pod is I always try to play devil's advocate. I always try to see every position. Uh, again, I think as you've seen, I'm not really for our involvement over there. That being said, I have used that as like a devil's advocate argument. Like yeah. he did say this. And yeah. I'm now learning in real time that I'm misattributing that. So no, it's good that you brought that up. I've I've said in their defense, you know, Putin, former KGB agent, did say that the fall of the Soviet Union was the worst day of his life or like the worst yeah. event of his life. Yeah. So that's not accurate. Yeah, the rhetorical function of that line was actually he was trying to acknowledge to this vast conglomeration of, uh, you know, that Russia itself is, sure. a, is a federal republic with like 70 or 80 different constituent entities uh, and he was basically saying to them, look, let's start off with the obvious. We know that we live through a disaster. I was Now, there too. how yeah. do we move forward here in a way that creates the kind of society we want to create? Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, gotcha. it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it was completely put on its head. Uh, that's that's like me in 50 years being like, I remember 9-11. I remember COVID. It sucked. But and move forward. And it's gotcha. Yeah, it's trying to acknowledge the positions of the people who maybe, you know, were uh feeling very, like something bad happened at the very least say something, something something bad did happen at the very least you're just reading the room right if you're in boston yeah. you just say yeah yankees suck right just you know whatever <laughs> you're just you know just try to get and if you're in a, if you're in new york you say fuck boston right it's, it's just what you're just reading the room it's yeah. you know it's you know you see someone your age and you give them a fist bump you meet your girlfriend's father you shake his hand it's, you're just reading the room um yeah and 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 why wouldn't you view it that way why, why wouldn't you view something where, you know, someone like me, I was born in 1990. I was 11 when 9-11 happened. I now know all about the Mujahideen, Operation Cyclone, and us funding them and them becoming the Taliban. Like, okay, but to someone born in 1990 who didn't do any of that, who had no hand in it, I just popped out in 1990 in the United States. To me, that's when history begins, and then I see 9-11, I'm like, Sure, maybe things did lead up to that, but from my point of view, this or I, you know, I used to work out with a guy who was a firefighter on nine eleven in Ground Zero, lost a ton of friends. I mean, truly crushed to death in the rubble. Okay, he could learn about the Mujahideen and the background of the Cold War and the big new Brzezinski and blah blah blah. The reality is, is some guys knocked down some towers and his best friends died, and you have to you have to put yourself in that. You have to be aware of it all, but you also have to be aware of the microcosm. So there are a lot of people in Russia who, regardless of the history of the Cold War and the 1917 revolution, blah, 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 blah. There are a lot of people who were born in a time where in when, you know, in their 10, 15, 20, 30 years old, 
the empire fell, oligarchs took over, pillaged everything, mafia ran rampant, life expectancy dropped, and it was just a war-torn hellhole with alcoholism running rampant. You're going to try to reverse that. Well, don't you know that this... Okay, but if there's a Tommy, if there's an Ivan born in 1990, in the same way that I understand the history, but at the same time, I don't care because like this is in my life, You, why would you care? You're over there. You're in some crappy, just, you know, block apartment, concrete, concrete dystopian hellhole. And you're trying to fix it. And then if you're and if you're trying to run for office, you're going to acknowledge that shared experience and try to fix it. And then America comes along and NATO comes along and we're doing this and you're trying to build back. And all of a sudden we're coming right up on your border and shooting live missiles around. Hey, well, what a surprise when you go onto the guy's property who has a newborn, he pulls out a shotgun and aims it at you. Like, are, are you surprised? Well, there's a whole history of how he's not allowed to have it. Okay, whatever. Newborn, wife, guy, shotgun. That's what it is. Why Why wouldn't you try to defend your borders? Why, why wouldn't you? Back yeah, to I mean, the, yeah, your, your point is so good that, you know, in some ways, if you haven't lived through this stuff, you don't know the history. You haven't spent no. a lot of time. I mean, who should spend their time reading about every war and the whole history? Yeah. But if you don't know all that background, it's very easy to be deceived. And it's very easy to sort of fall prey to, you know, what is really a sort of a regime of propaganda coming out of Washington and unfortunately the media. I mean, the media's role should be to, to hold the politicians' to, feet to the fire, to provide, you know, information and background to people who don't have time to spend, you know, weeks and months in the library digging, they're supposed to set the stage, but instead they've pretty much become like a propaganda wing of the state. Stenographers. Um, say again? Stenographers. They're just taking the, yeah, taking the word of the cases, king and just writing it down, it writing down the that, decrees. Yeah, yeah. And in many cases, they're thoroughly infiltrated by the intelligence, you know, agencies and stuff. And um, Twitter files. We're now, we're now seeing yeah, what right. we've assumed. We're now seeing our assumptions be vindicated exactly i mean it's uh you know it's when you talk this way you almost feel like you're being paranoid but unfortunately the media really are become like a propaganda wing of the state it's not paranoia if the threat's real yeah you know there's a, a there's a guy named uh robert wright who um uh, uh he does a newsletter called non-zero newsletter that i look at sometimes and uh he had a little he told us a joke a story that uh he heard from somewhere else it was <laughs> This is a story about a uh, uh, an American and a Russian flying back together from Russia to the U.S. And the um, the uh, you know the Russian guy asked the American guy, you, you know, why are you uh, the Russian guy? Asked the American guy, why why are you travel why are you traveling? And you know, he tells him he's there in business or whatever. And then he asked the Russian guy, he says, uh, you know, what what are you uh, traveling to the U.S. for? And he says, well, I'm trying to learn how the Americans do propaganda. And the American says. What propaganda? And the Russian says, you see what I mean? <laughs> That's exactly the point. It's, you know, if it's being put forward by uh, media that are uh, ostensibly private and ostensibly independent, but they're just, uh, as you said, they're basically just mouthpieces for the state, you know, this is uh, effectively propaganda. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's too bad that it's come to this. I think it was David Foster Wallace, and I've used this quote before, and it, it applies to tons of things, in it, but I think it fits here as well. And it's, uh, there are two young fish, and they graduate fish college, and it's the first day of the rest of their fish lives. 
and they're walking down the sidewalk of their little fish town and they're wearing their caps and gowns and an older fish swims by and says, morning boys, how's the water? And they both nod and smile <laughs> and they keep swimming. And then about 10 feet later, one of the guys looks at the other one and he goes, bro, what the hell is water? <laughs> and it's the same thing, right? It's yeah. We don't do propaganda here, but it's, and it does. I mean, again, I was I was banned from YouTube in August 2021 for interviewing Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough about, I mean, God forbid that people should take vitamin D. And you have your assumptions that these have been infiltrated. I mean, at the time, I just figured YouTube was taking bribes from like Pfizer or something, because to me, as bad as that was, it was also the most like, yeah, what do you knew? <laughs> like, you know, like JP Morgan, like they, they would all buy up newspapers in the turn of the century. Like it, it's, it's all this. It doesn't make it good, but it's like, yeah, what are you an idiot? Of course, this is how it's going. Of course, it's corrupt. Um, I had those assumptions. I had those, you know, inklings. But I always and I still do. It said it's a private company. And it was important for me to to remain consistent with that because as much as I hated them for banning me and I'm trying to grow this business and this podcast literally pays for my rent. It is my well-being. It is how I eat food. I still had to hold true with what I believed and said that this is a private company because there's nothing I despise more than when people will, you know, rail against one thing and then when their guy is in the White House, all of a sudden they're for it. Like you're either for or against endless war. You're either for or against, you know, tax breaks. You're either whatever. Just remain consistent. Otherwise, you're a, you're a, a pawn without an independent thought in your head. And so I still do hold that these are private companies because this is a private podcast. This is a one-man show. I produce it. I upload it. I manage the social media. I find the guests. I schedule them. I email them. I do everything. And because of that, I can talk to anyone I want about anything. No one told me to that I have to have you on. I wanted to have you on. We're gonna talk. And if you had done, if, if you had a completely different opinion and talked about why we need to back Ukraine, I would still sit here and have this discussion with you, as I have done with CIA analysts. You know, Ray McGovern has this. I've had the people on with a different view. I would hate if anyone tried to tell me what I could and couldn't do, and I have to. I have to be consistent with that. That all being said. And extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Well, we now have extraordinary evidence of the Twitter files, right? The the Intercept posted the DHS FOIA re uh, requests on October 31st of 2022 about, you know, back-end portals to Twitter. And it hinted at things with Instagram and Facebook, but we haven't seen any concrete evidence. We are now seeing concrete evidence from Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter showing that there is a, not a one-off, but a, a, a mechanized, systematic flowchart of how the FBI would have people taken off Twitter. Again, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, so everything that I say now is speculation. But you have to walk out in your own mind. Just toy with it in your own mind, you the listener. How unlikely does it now seem that this is maybe also happening at Facebook or YouTube. These massive corporations, which from Section 230 and then all the way back to Roosevelt and antitrust, should be broken up, and the people that can break them up are the government. What interest does the government have in not breaking them up? Well, I would imagine 
you do what I ask and I'll let you run the table. I'll let you keep your monopoly. You have to ask yourself, and again, we have to have the evidence so we can't go and start making these claims, but you have to at least walk it out in your own mind. What are the chances that this is also going on at the other corporations? And what are the chances that it was only COVID misinformation? We saw with the DHS leaks on October 31st, or the FOIA request, excuse me, that it began with COVID and they wanted to expand it to news about border crossings, inflation, vaccine mandates, and U.S. involvement in Ukraine. We have to have the evidence. But what I, I would ask the listener to just play with that thought in their own mind. What are the chances that it has expanded from Twitter to other corporations and that the topic has expanded, that there's been mission creep from ivermectin to Ukraine? Just throwing it out there as a thought experiment. That's really it. I think you can come to some conclusions pretty rapidly. So I don't know. I don't really know where I was going with that. But that's kind of my two cents on this. <laughs> Dr. Abela, your thoughts? Good stuff. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I hesitate to go into it, but I'll just mention it just because sure. it's relevant. Uh, before I got, you know, the Ukraine war got started pretty much in February. I guess that things got hot a couple of months before that. But uh, early on with COVID, I was paying attention, given my medical background to what was going on. And it was clear that things weren't right. I, I did some pretty detailed looking at some of the stuff that was happening around remdesivir, also vitamin D. And, um, I, you know, it was it wasn't right. Um, also, ways in which, you know, uh, disease fatality rates were being presented in the media and by the government. So, uh, yeah, so the fact that you're drawing a connection here and seeing kind of inaccurate information being presented across different domains, you know, whether it be COVID or whether it be this war, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's disappointing, but I think it's true. And I think you're, uh, I think you're seeing certain connections that are actually present. It's, there's almost like a sad realization real quick as an aside the, the reason why I, I was never interested in COVID I didn't care like I really didn't whatever sure pandemic it was newsworthy but I mean whatever the reason I started looking into it is because I out of all the episodes I had done like two or three hundred at the time it was only once I interviewed a doctor Dr. Roger Hodkinson that I got a, a suspension from YouTube and I was like that I didn't even know you could get suspended I was like what did I I'm not I'm not nude I'm not like calling for threats of violence I was like there has to be a mistake here and that's what first kind of made me start looking at it. And to me, it was very logical. I was like, well, we can just look back to, you know, nine out of 10 doctors smoke Lucky Strikes or thalidomide or Oxycontin. We, we've seen it, you know, the food pyramid with the sugars. Like we've seen time and time again, like how that's corrupted. And to me, it was as, it was as simple as like, it was as believable as saying, hey, the military industrial complex is out for power and money. Like to me, I thought it was like, a, yeah, and the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Like I thought these were just kind of understood truisms. And when the uh, Ukrainian war started last February, after really being up to my eyes and interviewing doctors about what had been going on, 
And again, getting on these doctors, not quacks, but getting on physicians in the same way that we have to point to Eisenhower and, you know, not not Jimi Hendrix, not John Lennon, but Eisenhower. You have to point to these people who would be the last person to criticize these things. When the war in Ukraine started, I, I just noticed some similarities. Immediate talking points, massive social media blitzkrieg, denounce all the naysayers. And yet again, like with COVID, it wasn't some vague, well, who's behind it? It was very, very quickly, path of least resistance, be like, oh, it's the ones making all the money, right? It wasn't, there's no big ivermectin, it was Pfizer and Moderna, the ones making money hand over fist. And same thing was like, isn't it weird how the one thing none of us can criticize is a war where the entrenched power structure that has been making money off wars for the last century and a half is doing it yet again. And, you know, you can, it is that, that dark realization, which I guess it's not, you know, truth is truth. It doesn't care. It's not for or against you. It just is, you know, that the spin of an electron doesn't have an opinion about you. It just is. Do with it what you will. It's kind of becoming more apparent that you have to almost assume like the weakest link or the least, the lowest common denominator. Whatever power or technology or mode of money making or anything, whatever exists, you have to assume what will the worst human do with it? Not, you know, I see a car, I go, oh, I can drive to the grocery store. You look at it, you're like, oh, I can go visit my mom. You have to assume, what about someone that's going to drive it into a school? And it's sad, but you have to look at that and then go, how can we safeguard against that? I'm never going to do anything bad on a plane, but I understand metal detectors because some people will. The second you give anyone leeway in the U.S. government to control misinformation, how how stunningly quickly it goes from we got to deal with this pandemic to shut down all naysayers about involvement in the Ukraine. I mean, at a at a neck breaking speed, it just went to the most evil thing. And you kind of just have to, I guess, assume that about everything. And that's why you got to if it's a private company, you got to stand for it being a private company. If you don't think the government should have involvement over your ability to speak, you have to apply that to everyone. Because the second you make an exception about good intentions, well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, like, the second something comes up and someone's trying to do something in the name of your safety, they may be truthful, but just acknowledge that eventually the worst human being in the world will take those reins. We got to surveil everyone because of 9-11. Well, how long until it's used to arrest Ed Snowden or Julian Assange? Like drive Glenn Greenwald out of the country. Like, how quickly does that happen? And that's kind of, I guess, that's, I guess that's my deus ex machina, is assume everyone's evil and act accordingly. And it's sad. And it, you don't want to paint your, your, your life gray with pessimism. But I don't think it's pessimism. I think it's just being realistic assume that any and all power will be abused by the least among us and act accordingly. I, I, uh, <clears throat> sorry, did you want to say more, Tommy? I, no, 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 I, no, no. I thought about my... that, which is, uh, 
I agree with you in many respects, for sure. I think you're you're really onto something. I also I do want to say though that I also think sure. there are people who simply have the wrong view, but are well intentioned. Sure. Both within government, within defense department, within sure. state, etc. So, uh, in some ways, it's I mean, it's not that this is so reassuring, but it, it's it's nicer to realize that than to yes. feel that everybody is just corrupt, which yes. I don't think is the case. I think it's a real mix of. No, you're you're absolutely correct. Confusing motivations that go on, including some good intentions. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. It, so many of the guys I interview, I mean, Delta Force, tip of the spear. You know, I've had on the guys that located Bin Laden's compound, and you talk to them, and these aren't war hawks. These are like deeply religious, deeply phil- philanthropic, good people, respectful people. They're, they're the most tolerant people you'll ever meet because they visited every country on the planet. I mean, my buddy Dale, youngest ever member of Delta Force, looks like Captain America. And you would think every stereotype, like, oh, he's just a rah-rah pro-America. No, he's married to a black Muslim woman. Like, it's the last thing you'd expect. And that is, I think, a comforting compliment to the darkness I was just talking about, is there's an overwhelming majority of people who genuinely are trying to do the right thing. And that is, that definitely softens the blow of it's not, it's not all just evil war hawks. In fact, they're a very tiny minority, but a very tiny minority can do disproportional damage. And so you have to set up safeguards against that. I'm sure a lot of people out there genuinely thought they were helping stem the flow of misinformation that was adding to the pandemic total deaths. I've I've certainly believe that. I I know that because I know they're good people, people I know and love. But there are some demons that hide amongst the angels and go, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's stop spreading misinformation. Let's buy this patented vaccine for a hundred times. The was the manufacturing price like uh, like a buck fifty, and they sell it for one hundred and fifty dollars. They're hiding there too. And unfortunately, those demons can do a disproportionate amount of damage. So yeah, don't don't have a dark view of the world. But I guess just be be aware that they do exist. Yeah. But I would say the vast majority of people are good. Which is, I guess, really encouraging. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good to have some light. Some it's, some bit of light in the middle of this mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not it's murky. It's a lot of good people with some bad people. But I think that's where I think that's perhaps the the thesis of everything I've been discussing in this show is we'll we'll maybe we'll maybe wrap it up with this. And uh and I'd love to I'd love to have you on again. I'd love to I'm I'm gonna get your book and I'd love to go through that with you. I think that'd be a cool episode. But um what was I going to wrap it up with? I, I just completely lost. Well, that That's what it is. Um, I think the reason why a lot of people maybe aren't receptive to the idea is that there might be people who are propagating the war in Ukraine to make money or that there might be pharmaceutical executives who are pushing death and harm on people for money. And this is encouraging, is that most people don't see that and can't imagine it because they're good people. They they can't imagine that because they are good people. And that's good. You don't want the average person to imagine that, right? 
and so in, in a sense that naivety is is beautiful that the average person is such a kind-hearted you know good karma out good karma in person that they can't wrap their minds around the fact that there are some evil people but complete ignorance of those evil people is how we end up with historical atrocities and we always look back and go how did that happen well this is how it happens is we don't want to look it in the eye and it's not comfortable to look it in the eye but you have to so but with that dr abelow closing thoughts closing words i think you just said them uh, nice nice being on the show thanks for having me thank you so much for coming on man i'll put all your stuff in the description i will send you an email um all the episode will be up later today and uh yeah I'll, i'm absolutely going to schedule you for another one i'll grab your book and uh i'd love to chat with that about you that would be awesome chat about that with you did i just butcher that sentence i think i did but uh sounds good thanks all right thank you so much god bless everybody stay safe out there check out his book check out his website all that good stuff will be in the description thank you again i look forward to talking to you